Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. H.G. Wells made a name for himself as early as one of the earliest uh, science fiction writers in America with well-known novels such as The War of Worlds, The Time Machine, The Invisible Man. Few people, however, today remember one of his earliest works that captured the imagination at the turn of the century and spawned all kinds of articles and poems and things like that reflecting on this work called The Country of the Blind. It is a story about a mountaineer named Nunez who falls into a deep valley in South America where he discovers a people cut off from the world but are completely blind, a hereditary defect, a birth defect that was passed on from generation to generation, slowly spread throughout the entire community so that now the entire valley was afflicted with blindness. And in spite of all that, they had managed to adapt fully to life without sight. All kinds of explanations, the way they not only found their way around, but managed to conduct their business and build their shelters and everything. Nunez becomes convinced that he can help these people, that he can teach these people, that he could lead these people into a better way of life by just helping them see, by being able to explain to them the world around them. But the villagers have absolutely no concept of sight. They can't even imagine what it's like. It's been so long since anyone in their community had the ability to see. They don't understand the concepts that he's trying to explain to them. And eventually, after some time, they even try to persuade him that he needs to undergo a surgery to have his eyes removed so that he could be freed from his unstable obsession with sight. The novel, as I said, provoked a great deal of discussion as people pondered not only what it might be like to live in a a village like that, but what it would be like to be the only person or maybe one of only a few people alive who could see living in a world of people who couldn't. I don't think Wells was intentionally trying to make any kind of spiritual overtones, but what he describes in that novel is really a picture of what the Scripture teaches about humanity. It does teach, the Bible, that every person born in this world is born blind. They're born spiritually blind. And according to Scripture, you remain in that state, that spiritual blindness, your entire life all the way to your death unless God opens your eyes. It's not a physical blindness, it's a spiritual blindness, and it's not, we might say, accidental, it is willful. It is something that you and I chose. We chose to be blind. We chose to ignore certain truths. We chose not to see. It is a willful rejection of God's revelation of himself, not only in the beauty of creation all around us, but even in his word and through Christ Jesus, the greatest revelation of God ever given on the face of the earth. 
And it results in the inability to see the truths, the central truths of the gospel, of God's word. The real danger then for you and I, for anyone, the real danger for us is that we would be blind to the blindness, that we would not recognize it, that it is, first of all, a central problem for us from which we need to confess our desperate situation and cry out to God to give us eyes to see, or that we don't recognize the world that we live in is one filled with blindness. We forget that men and women are blind apart from Christ, and we begin to be drawn into their perception of the world, their suggested solutions, even sometimes their admonition that we need to give up our unstable obsession with seeing, with thinking clearly, with knowing the truth. As Christians, we can sometimes be intimidated by their skepticism, by their objections, and let that stuff influence us. Well, Jesus knew all this. He understood this danger, and he wants to warn us. He wants to warn us. He wanted to warn his disciples to grasp this truth. And so we see him frequently warning particularly about the blindness of the first century leaders of Israel, calling them blind leaders of the blind, but warning his apostles not to get drawn into following them. This morning we find ourselves in another passage that, uh, that gives another warning about this danger. And it comes to us as the sun is setting, you might say, on Jesus' days of ministry in Galilee, We've been seeing over the past few chapters how Jesus is increasingly moving outside of Galilee, going to non-Jewish territories or territories not controlled by Jews or by Herod, only making brief forays for, uh, for small ministry trips back into Galilee. And to this morning, we come to one of those final trips. In fact, it's his second to the last time he will ever be in Galilee we're told in Matthew 15:39, the very last verse of that chapter in chapter 15, that he had sent away this crowd of people that he had just fed, and he got into a boat and went to the region of Magadan. That's a lost town. We don't know where it is other than the fact that it's located somewhere across the, the Sea of Galilee from uh, the uh, 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 Decapolis where Jesus was. So it's somewhere in Jewish territory on the, on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in this brief return to this uh, Jewish region, Jesus will encounter and confront the Pharisees before you'll notice in verse 5 of chapter 16, yet again traveling to the other side. So he's there in Galilee. He goes back across the, the sea, and then he's going to make his way up very far north uh, up well into Gentile territory, and then turn around and start the long trek, which will take him briefly through Galilee one more time, but really just as a stopping post on his way to Jerusalem and his crucifixion. So here he is, as I said, at the dawn, at the at the uh, 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 the sun sun setting on his ministry here in Galilee, and and as he does that, he's on this brief ministry trip to Galilee with another encounter with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, 
and Sadducees. And after dealing with them, he will dispatch them, and, and it's all going to lead to an important lesson, a discussion with his disciples concerning the dangers of the spiritual blindness of these men, understanding its manifestations, understanding its working. Jesus refers to it in this passage as leaven or what we might call yeast, that tiny powder that you sprinkle into your dough and moves slowly, almost imperceptibly, but eventually permeates the entire loaf of bread that you're preparing. This is the image Jesus uses for the subtle, almost imperceptible danger of their spiritual, willful blindness. Listen to what he says after he deals with these religious leaders. And we can pick up in verse 1. The Pharisees and the Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. And he answered them, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, that is uh, by implication in boat, when they reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no, no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves, the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak of bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. This passage, while it takes place on two sides of the lake, it's all tied together with a discussion about these Pharisees and Sadducees. And Jesus's follow-up discussion, particularly with the disciples, about what they need to perceive in all of this. But to understand Jesus's warning, we have to understand the confrontation. We have to understand what was on display in front of them, what he expected them to see and perceive. It's really a, a confrontation about perception. It's a confrontation about seeing. It's their lack of perception, their lack of spiritual sight, their lack of understanding that is highlighted here, their pretense of wanting to understand and yet their willing, or I should say unwillingness, to understand. They claim to want to know about Jesus, but they really don't. They claim to want a sign, but they really don't want one. They claim to be looking for proof, but they really don't want proof. And all of this is grounded in their spiritual blindness. They think that they clearly understand things. But Jesus exposes them and their resistance to the truth. 
And to understand all this, we need to observe three fundamental characteristics of the spiritual blindness that are highlighted here for us in this passage. These three characteristics of spiritual blindness, beginning in verse 1 with their insincere inquiries. That's basically what you have in verse 1. They are insincere in their questions, in their seeking they come asking Jesus show them to show them a sign from heaven, some sort of supernatural phenomenon in the sky, something maybe grander than any of the miracles he had already performed up to this point, maybe something like causing the sun to stand still or a, <clears throat> a meteor shower, possibly the uh, changing colors of the, of the uh, heavenly bodies, the moon, something spectacular and seen across the sky and the question may have sounded sincere might have sounded like they were wanting some proof some reason to believe in him but Matthew tells us what their motive is their motive is to test Jesus or we might say it was to prove something and it wasn't so much to prove that he could do this as much as to prove that he could not They knew that he had worked miracles. In fact, they had criticized his miracles. They had, in fact, blamed his miracles on the the, the notion that he was doing them by the power of Satan. So it wasn't that they lacked proof, but the proof that they had been given, they had declared to be either corrupt or insufficient. And so now they're asking for something bigger, not because they want to be convinced, but because they want to find something that Jesus can't do. They want to find the thing that he's not able to do, something that would prove once and for all their presupposition that he's not the Christ. Their uh, purpose in all this in, in, in wanting to test him, in other, in other words, was just to discredit him. In that, they're like all unbelievers. The obstacle to their faith really has very little to do with evidence They need to hear the gospel message, obviously. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. At some point, there has to be some explanation of the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. But really, that's not the primary issue that is their obstacle to faith. They may claim they want more proof. They may say that they want to hear more evidence, but they're not sincere in their questions. They're not genuine because when you answer the questions, they just come up with more questions. And this happens so often when you're talking to someone about the gospel of Christ, they immediately throw up some sort of vague objection to what you're trying to say to them. They say, you know, well, there's no proof that God exists. There's no proof that Christ exists. That might sound like a reasonable scientific statement, some reasonable statement of the evidence but it's really not so many times it's a smokescreen it's a trick it's an attempt to get out of the conversation because when you ask them clarifying questions simple questions well what kind of evidence are you looking for there's no answer well what kind of evidence do you think would count historical evidence scientific evidence philosophical arguments what exactly is the evidence you're looking for What kind of arguments have you already considered and what did you find wrong with them? There's no answer to that question. 
They can almost never give you a straight answer because they really are not looking for answers, nor have they looked in the past. They really just are attempting not to be pinned down. They're not really seeking answers. What they're seeking are excuses, mantras. There's not enough proof. There's not enough evidence. Believing in God is irrational, although it's certainly not irrational. Believing in the tooth fairy is irrational. But believing in God is like believing in so many other things that you can't necessarily see visibly with your eyes to begin with, but it doesn't mean that you don't believe in them. We believe in atoms, but we can't see them physically with our eyes. There's nothing unreasonable of the idea of a personal God creating the universe. As one writer said, a big bang requires a big banger. A moral law needs a moral lawgiver, a single standard behind it. All that stuff makes perfect sense. But as I said, when you have these kinds of objections, these kinds of questions, they're not sincere so often. They're just attempts to escape accountability, to escape conversations, because the goal is not finding truth. The goal is is finding ways to hold on to your sin. And any evidence that you might throw up that would get in the way of that goal is set aside, it is ignored, it is explained away, it is excused. Well, that's what you got going on with the Pharisees here. They're asking a question, but they don't really, really want the answer that they're asking for. And we know this because of the second uh, characteristic of their spiritual blindness that you See, highlighted here in verse 2 through 4, their distorted discernment. That's where Jesus takes them. The distorted discernment that they have. They ask for a sign in the heavens, a sign in the sky. Well, Jesus, Jesus gives them, or begins, I should say, with an illustration of how good they are at reading the sky. He says, when it's evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. In the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening This is the way the weather patterns work in Israel. The rain would obviously come off of the sea, off of the Mediterranean Sea to the west. And so when the winds are blowing from the east across the land of Israel, out over the Mediterranean, pushing the the rain and the clouds out back out to the ocean, as they blow off the desert, they would pick up the, the residue of the sand and give the, 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 the western sky, the evening sky, the sunset, they would give it this red look. The red skies in the evening would indicate that the wind was blowing the rain back out in the Mediterranean and thus fair weather. But in the morning, when the sun's rising in the east and all the dust is still located far to the east. It hasn't blown across Israel. Winds haven't come that way. It probably means that the winds are not far enough west to prevent the rain. And so there is, in other words, a good chance that the clouds will blow in from the Mediterranean and there will be storms. The people had discerned all this. They had read the signs They looked out over the desert sky. They looked out over the Mediterranean sea, and they read all the signs, and they read them logically, 
and they read them accurately. Jesus says, you see all this. You read the signs. You predict what they say. It turns out that way. With all these little evidences, these simple little evidences, you draw accurate conclusions about things like the weather. You don't need Doppler radars. You don't need weather satellites. You can, you can see simple things and draw obvious conclusions. And this is sometimes what we might call common sense. People live this way all the time. They, they draw obvious conclusions about their pathway in life. They make good and accurate decisions about all kinds of things. They observe patterns and signs. A carpenter who learns the patterns of rings in a board becomes really excellent at his craft. A sophisticated scientist who observes molecular data of some piece of metal begins to make predictions about the way that metal will react in various circumstances. Men and women exhibit this kind of ingenuity and this kind of discernment every day in their lives. They're not dumb, in other words. They observe facts and they draw conclusions with amazing accuracy, sometimes from the smallest amount of evidence, like the color of a sky at sunset. Well, Jesus then turns this around and applies it to the spiritual realm. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, he says, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. In other words, you're not dealing honestly with the spiritual evidence that's presented to you. Not like you do with the meteorological evidence, not like you do with all other evidence in your life. Your observations are perhaps there, but you're not drawing the right conclusions. And when you don't apply the same logical abilities to discern these spiritual signs, what Jesus calls here the signs of the time, which in that uh, situation would have referred to the spiritual climate at the time of his coming and the evidence of everything he's done. When you don't apply the same logical capacities, the same logical abilities to these spiritual truths, It's not because you don't have the mental capacity. It's because you don't have the willingness to do it. You're intelligent. You make common sense, sometimes even sophisticated conclusions. You demonstrate the adequacy of your mental powers all the time. But when it comes to spiritual things, you show a lack of common sense. Again, not because these things are outside the realm of your intellectual capability. It's that you're not being honest. You're not being honest with the evidence. The evidence of your own sin, the evidence of your own brokenness, and the evidence of Christ. You hear the message of Christ, you hear the message of His resurrection, of His power, And instead of investigating it, you ignore it. Instead of seeking the truth, you make excuses for rejecting it. 
You see your sin. You see how it is destroying your life. Just like the Bible says it will. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. It says there is no peace for the wicked. And you are seeing those things happening in your life. You're experiencing them. And even though it's right in front of your eyes, you are refusing to draw the right conclusion. You've known your own struggles to overcome these things. You can't control your desires. You can't control the guilt. You can't control the lies. Your life confirms everything the Bible says about you being a captive to sin. You cannot break free. And yet all you do is make excuses rather than accept the truth of God's word. So instead of dealing with all the evidence, just like you do in the normal course of your life, you ignore it. You make excuses for your lack of belief. You don't want reasons to believe. You want reasons not to believe. You demonstrate how arbitrary, how dishonest you are when you hear the claims of Christ. This is why Jesus says in verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. The, the very request from their heart, Jesus says, reflects their heart. They're not, they're not seeking the truth. They're seeking an excuse. This is just a reflection of their ongoing evil and resistance and unfaithfulness, their adultery, their spiritual adultery. See, the issue is that Jesus is not that Jesus failed to give them enough signs. It was their failure to accept the signs. And so they just keep asking. They keep, keep making excuses. And so Jesus says, I'm, I'm not going to do that. The only sign you're going to be given is the sign of Jonah, which is really not capitulating to their request. He, he's not really answering them. They wanted something on the spot. They wanted something this magnanimous but he says that i'm going to give you a sign it'll be in the future at least at this point in jesus's life for us it's in the past because what he's referring to here is his resurrection the sign of jonah this is a a statement that he used apparently a couple times in his ministry he says Back in Matthew 12, verse 40, once again, when they were asking him for signs, he says, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. That's an analogy, obviously, to Jesus' death, uh, his physical death, his burial, and then his miraculous rising from the dead, coming out of the grave. And he singles this out from all other signs. And he says, this will be the only sign that's given. That is to say, this will be the only sign that's necessary. This will be the one sign, the one sign you are required to make a judgment about. This is the one sign you must make a judgment about. The one sign by which you will be judged. The one sign that's given. Which, of course, flips the table on this whole thing, on these religious leaders, just like it flips the table on you. No one, uh, I should say, no one comes asking for themselves to be judged. They're coming wanting to judge God. But the one who needs proof isn't God. The one who needs proof is you. 
you are not the person testing God. God is the one testing you. And he's given the sign. He's presented you with all that is necessary to understand his power and his righteousness and his offer of forgiveness. The only thing to determine whether or not you're going to respond wisely, intelligently, is how you respond to that sign. In other words, the sign was given not just to demonstrate God's power, not just to prove God, it was given to prove you. How dishonest you are with the evidence. It's given to demonstrate how undeniably you harden your heart against God, as Paul says to the Ephesians in Ephesians 4.12. Unbelievers are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them because of the hardness of their hearts. The sign of Jonah. The sign of the resurrection Scripture says in Romans 1.4 that he, Jesus Christ, was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. For those of us who have found the truth, for those who are seeking the truth, that sign has always been enough. The fact that a man conquered death with all of its implications, with all of its glorious promises and that would have been enough for the Pharisees and the Sadducees but it wasn't because even when they saw the sign in their own lifetime in the months to come they would reject it they wouldn't accept it just like they didn't accept any of his other signs and so Jesus tells us as Jesus departs Matthew tells us he He said all these things and then he left them and he departed. He got back into the boat. He went back across the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And when he gets there, he has an important lesson from all this. And he he gives it to his disciples. He warns them about what they just witnessed with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Specifically, in verses 5 through 12, he talks to them about the perilous pretense of these men. The perilous pretense. They were pretending they, they, they are always pretending, and that is dangerous, dangerous for anyone, even the followers of Christ. There will always be a danger from pretenders that say they want the truth, but not really, a claim to be seeking knowledge, but not with pure motives. Jesus describes it here like leaven, like, as I said, uh, yeast, or in today's world, we might easily refer to it as cancer, which we use all the time. We talk about something or someone being a cancer, a slow-moving, almost invisible force that is deadly in the end. That's the idea. And Matthew tells us the way this unfolds. When they got to the other side of the lake, Jesus says to them, watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they immediately conclude that he's making some sort of reference to their lack of preparation for the journey. Apparently, they had not brought any bread along the way. They were heading into an area across the lake that was desolate, that was barren. There weren't a lot of places to buy food. And so they conclude he's talking about their 
lack of preparation, but Jesus corrects them in verse 8. Oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets were gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets were gathered? These are obviously the two miracles that we saw Jesus perform in Matthew 14 and Matthew 15 where he fed thousands of people from just a few loaves of bread. They were assuming that he was criticizing them they were assuming that somehow he was upset with them, that he, was, uh, that he was talking about their failure to prepare. That's not what he's talking about. Besides, he says, you, you easily forget that I'm capable and I've always been capable of making up for all of your failures, your deficits. I'm easily able to provide where you are lacking to make up for what you don't have, for what you forgot or what you failed to do. And he reminds them this. He could easily feed them as easily as he did those thousands of people. That kind of illustrates, by the way, what you and I are so prone to do, how quickly we assume the Lord's displeasure with us. We quickly forget all of his mercies, all of his kindnesses, all of his provisions, all of his answers to prayer we tend to think he's so focused on our our failures and assume the lord's displeasure with us but jesus is correcting them that's not what i'm talking about how is it that you fail to understand that i do not speak about bread beware of the leaven of the pharisees and sadducees if there's any dissatisfaction with christ is that they are slow to learn what he's trying to teach them for their own good and their own benefit. Verse 12, Then they understood that he didn't tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Teaching here isn't referring to some kind of formal classroom instruction. In fact, in terms of that, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would agree on very little if you're talking about their actual doctrine and their actual teaching. They didn't agree on much other than the fact that they both hated Jesus. They were, they were two doctrinally divergent sects within Israel. They accepted different versions of the scripture. They had different views of God and of the resurrection and of angels and of all kinds of things. What Jesus is talking about here isn't their formal doctrine. He's talking about their influence, their example. Be careful not to learn from these guys. Mark 8, 15, he actually says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Not that they were sitting under any kind of formal teaching of Herod. He's referring to Herod's way of thinking, a way of conducting himself. And more specifically, in Luke 12, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So it's not just their formal doctrine. It was the hypocrisy, or we might say the insincerity, that was behind their doctrine. 
Just like Herod, who we're told wanted to see Jesus because he was curious to see some miracle or some sign performed by Christ. He wasn't doing that because he wanted to find a savior or because he had any intention of giving his life to Christ. He was just, he was just curious. It was a seeking after some truth, but it wasn't sincere. It wasn't a genuine desire for the truth. He was seeking Jesus, with, but not with sincere motives. And the Pharisees were seeking signs. They were asking questions, but not with sincere motives. And this is what Jesus wants them to be aware of. This is what he wants them to be careful about. He wants them to understand that not everyone who shows an interest in Christ is sincere. Many of them are hypocritical. Many of them are like the the scribes or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or Herod. There is a dangerous kind of duplicity that is out there in a world of spiritual blindness. There is a spiritual pretense that is perilous. It's perilous to your soul personally. If you are pretending to be interested in Christ but you're not really wanting to know the truth. You're not really intending to follow. It's perilous to your own soul. And it's perilous to the disciples as a group or to the church eventually when Jesus ascends back to heaven. So they need to be aware. They need to understand the way spiritual blindness operates. It never presents itself as blindness. It always presents itself as seeing, as understanding, and perceiving, and making judgment. It doesn't acknowledge its inability to see. It claims to be, in fact, superior, the ultimate judge of what is right and wrong. It always tries to appear knowledgeable or at least interested But as the proverb says in Proverbs 4.19, the way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what they stumble over. They pretend to know. They pretend to want the truth, but it is all pretense. Because they love their darkness. Jesus says, beware of that. It is so subtle. It is like leaven. It is like cancer. It will will find its way into your group, into your sphere, into your friends, into your church, into your heart even. It will claim that it's got questions but it really doesn't want answers. There will be people who claim that they're seeking God, but they're really not. There will be people who claim that they have questions about the Bible, about your doctrine, about your church, about how to do this or how to do that, but their motives are not sincere. Don't be naive about this kind of spiritual blindness. Don't be naive about this kind of hypocrisy. 
Look, the Bible says it. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to find someone who is really seeking, someone who really wants to know the truth, you look for one thing, the fear of the Lord. Even if they don't have all of their I's dotted, their T's crossed, even if they can't quote you all the verses, they weren't brought up in church, all those other things, this is the one thing you see in their heart. They tremble before the Lord. They fear the Lord. Because they've come to understand that they live in a world of darkness, that there is no source out there that can provide them with the answers except for God alone. And so before Him, they tremble, even as they ask. And when they do find the truth, they obey. Spiritual darkness, the Bible says, pervades all the world. It infects every person. But it is eradicated. It is cured by Christ. When you come, when you confess your blindness, the Bible says He opens your eyes and you can see. Father, we're grateful for our reminders this morning again from your word. We remember those days of our own darkness. We see it all around us. And yet we need to be reminded to be on guard, to be always vigilant because the spiritual darkness lurking, seeking to undermine the church, to undermine the truth, to undermine even our faith, to oppose and frustrate, to question and persecute. We shouldn't be surprised by any of these things. We shouldn't be surprised by all the insincere excuses, all the insincere objections that come from people all around us. They are blind like everyone else until you heal them. And we pray that you would, Lord, with those that we know and those that we love, those that we encounter, we pray that you would spare them from their blindness, give them eyes to see. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.